Well, I am glad indeed that you have joined us this morning. Uh, during our time of preaching, we're going to continue as Chad just prayed uh, in our uh, preaching series through the book of Exodus. Uh, next week is actually going to be our last sermon in the book of Exodus. Can you believe it? We made it all the way to the end. Uh, and then two weeks later, we're going to start a four-week series on the strategy of our church. Uh, we want you to know, and if you're interested in how, we're, how we actually plan to accomplish this amazing mission uh, with these values, I would encourage you to come uh, during those four weeks to learn about how we're actually going to uh, accomplish the mission of glorifying God by helping others know Jesus and make him known in D.C. and around the world. Uh, also, I just want to say from the front, you guys are doing an amazing job of singing, okay? Keep it up. Amen? Amen? And that, that, uh, that song, Magnificent, Marvelous, Matchless Love, uh, it's, it's just, it fits right exactly with where we're going in, in uh, Exodus this morning. The title of my sermon this morning is The Goodness of God's Glory. The Goodness of God's Glory. Let's jump right in. <clears throat> Aslan? Aslan is, is a lion? The lion? The great lion? Ooh, said Susan. I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous in meeting a lion. Safe, said the beaver. Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good, for he is the king, I tell you. If any of you have watched in recent years the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know that line comes as Susan and her sister and brother are with the beaver in the beaver's den, and they're revealing the, the story about Aslan. And what is said about Aslan in those short lines could actually be said of God as well. God is not safe, but He is good. Moses and Israel had seen the unsafe nature of God. Moses wrote earlier in Exodus of the shocking and all-powerful or omnipotent presence of God as He appeared to Israel for the first time upon Mount Sinai. Moses recorded vivid, majestic, and terrifying depictions of God's presence in Exodus 19 and 20. And these descriptions are drawn from the storm at the mountaintop and the earthquake that is shaking the entire mountain. In this first revelation of God's glory, God shows Himself as one who is in absolute control of creation as the Creator God. He is wholly different from any God that Israel had heard about or learned about in Egypt or any God that man has fabricated since. For puny gods of pagan religions are inherently bound by either nature or the thing that, has, that man created to represent them. But the God of Israel, our God, 
is in absolute control of everything, even the clouds, even the thunder and the lightning and the earth when it quakes. Because he, had, he was preparing the earth for his majestic and unsafe presence. So what is conveyed to us earlier in Exodus uh, is a way in which only we can understand. I mean, Moses can only write words that we can understand because of our feeble minds. But they are awe-inspiring as Israel is introduced to this amazing and stunning God. And in our text today, we, are, we will see something even more astonishing, as if there could be something more astonishing. As God reveals His glory a second time to Israel at Mount Sinai. In the text last Sunday, as Andrew uh, preached for us, we learned that Moses had gone to the mountain to make intercession, or gone to meet with God to make intercession for Israel. And Moses did this because God, in response to the idolatry of Israel, that is, they worshipped another god, this golden calf that miraculously just popped out of the fire, you know. Uh, they they worshipped this, this idol, and in response to that, God told Moses that he was no longer going to be present with the people. Yet, Moses continued to plead with God that he would go with the people. And Moses knew that if God didn't go with them, that they would be a hopeless, sinful, rebellious, and godless people. Which, by the way, Moses said to God, if you let this happen, it will tarnish your name before the Egyptians. Miraculously, God accepts the intercession of Moses and says in Exodus 33:17, "This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by, no, by name." And then there, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses makes a surprising request of God. Moses asks, God, let me see your glory. As if it wasn't glorious enough that what God has already done. Moses says, let me see it. And God answers him and tells him that he will indeed satisfy this last request of Moses. And God says to Moses, in Exodus 33:19-20, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot... You cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. And now in Exodus 34, where we're going to focus this morning, God actually comes through with what he said to Moses. He reveals his glory to Moses. So if you have a copy of God's word, I would encourage you to go ahead and open it up to Exodus chapter 34. If you're using one of the Bibles around you, Exodus 34 can be found on page 74. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. I'm going to read Exodus 34 verses 1 to 9. 
The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone, like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai. And the Lord, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who by no means will clear clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Let us pray. Oh God, what we have just read and just heard is so amazing. God, You revealed Your glory by showing Moses Your goodness and proclaiming Your name. God, may we at some level, begin to grasp what has happened here. Because you, God, you've not said that you're an aloof, far-off God who, who doesn't, is not intimately involved in the dealings of this world. No, God, you made yourself known to Moses. You made yourself known to Israel. And now we have read your words and you've made yourself known to us. Oh God, may we know You today. God, may we see Your glory and may it astound us. May it amaze us. May it cause worship to well up in us. God, Praise and glory and honor be unto you for letting us see this and hear about this today. You are good. You are merciful and gracious. Be that to us today. In the name of Christ, amen.
of the main point of our time, the rest of our time together, is God's glory. God's glory is the foundation of our relationship with Him and our worship to Him. God's glory is the foundation of our relationship with Him and our worship to Him. In Exodus 34, 1-9, what we have before us is the very climax, the pinnacle of the restoration of Israel. God accomplishes that restoration by doing something that is utterly amazing. He reveals His glory to Moses and then... At the end of 39, what we see is that he reestablishes the covenant that the covenant breakers had broken. In the second giving, as he writes upon those tablets of stone that Moses carried up with him to the top of the mountain. But the focus of our time together is going to be on the heart of this passage in Exodus 34, 5 to 9. In verses 5 to 9, we have the details of what God said He would do in revealing His glory from Exodus 33:19, God has given us this Scripture for us to know that His glory and His goodness are, a, are linked and are to be seen as the heart of God's character. The goodness or glory of God is the very essence of His being. God is not... Shockingly, as he reveals himself, he is not an all-consuming, fiery judge who lacks compassion and resources for Israel. What we see here is that God is good. And He is full of mercy and grace. God's glory is His goodness, specifically expressed in grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And when God reveals His glory, we come to understand how it is indeed possible then for humanity to have a relationship with God. And because of what all He's revealed in His glory, we also see that God and God alone is worthy of our worship. So let us first take the first part of our main point, the glory of God or God's glory. Let's look at that in Exodus 5. In Exodus 34, 5 to 7. As Moses requested, God answered. God told Moses in 33, 19 that his glory would be seen as a display of his goodness. Look back, look back with me at 33, 19. And he said, that's God, said to Moses, I will make my goodness pass before you and will pro- proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy to whom I will show mercy. The display of God's goodness would also be accompanied by the proclamation of the name of God. And this is exactly what happens in verse 6. God passes before Moses as he is hid in the cleft of the rock and declared his name, the Lord, the Lord. And when you see the name of the Lord in all caps like you do in verse 6 and other verses in Exodus, that's God revealing His perfect matchless name. He's declaring to Israel, the Lord is in your presence. The Lord, be unmistaken. It is I, the Lord. 
So God revealed his goodness by declaring to Moses the essence of his character. And and instead of declaring that he is a judge with the divine right to judge Israel for their idolatry, God instead emphasizes his lofty, noble qualities. God emphasizes his lofty, noble qualities. In verse 6, we see God's glory or that he is good because he is merciful and gracious. God is compassionate towards Israel. This is what it means for him to be merciful and gracious. He's compassionate to them. For they were miserable back in Exodus 33:4. They realized how atrocious their idolatry really was. But God was merciful. They gave him, then God gave himself to them once again when all that Israel deserved was God's punishment, not his presence. They were guilty sinners, but God was gracious. Next, we see in verse 6, God is a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger. This is like God saying that He has a very, very long, very, very slow-burning fuse that would incite Him to be angry with His people. Now, I don't know about you, but I know my own heart. And often, I have a very, very, very short fuse that is very combustible. But friends, that's me. That is not the God of Israel and the God of the Scriptures. That is not your God. He is patiently long-suffering with the anger due the sin of humanity. And He often, He often withholds punishment that is due our sin against Him. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 22 as he contemplates this idea of God's slow anger towards sinfulness. He said, what if, in in Romans 9.22, what if desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, which... Oh no, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Uh, Paul is telling us that God is patiently enduring people who deserve wrath in order to demonstrate His power through wrath and, and, and judgment. In order that those of us who have received mercy might really understand and get how glorious God really is. He's a patient, slow to anger, merciful, and gracious God. He patiently endures vessels of wrath. How much more patient, friends, is He with vessels of mercy who join the Spirit, who indwells them to fight against fleshly sin, to be fruitful, And live God-glorifying lives. Yet how often do we believe the lie that He is angry with us? 
ready to judge us and smite us at any moment. That is not our God. That is not the God who reveals himself to Israel in Moses. Friends, there is much sin in you, but there is more grace in God, more mercy in God, and more patience in God than sin in you. You cannot out-sin His grace and mercy. Now, that doesn't mean you ought to try. But what it does mean is that if you're hearing a voice in your mind or your heart or your soul telling you that somehow that you have exhausted the grace of mercy of God because you sinned one more time, right now you can know that that is a lie from the pit of hell because God's goodness flows from His unending reservoir of mercy and grace. God's goodness flows to His people in an unending reservoir of mercy and grace. Your sin will not tap or plumb the depths of that. And that's good news. And then God says, as He keeps going, keeps revealing Himself, that He is abounding. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that word faithfulness is sometimes translated throughout the Old Testament as truth. Abounding in love and truth and faithfulness. God is telling Moses that He is full to the brim, to overflowing, full of acts of benevolence and loving kindness. As, not because of how good we are, but because He has bound Himself by His Word to be that way towards Israel. Hey friends, that's good. That's amazing. He's unending in benevolence. God is conveying that He is absolutely reliable. He is absolutely durable. And He is absolutely unending in faithfulness. Israel will not exhaust God's resources, His benevolence, or His love, because God is true to Himself and His Word. He will accomplish what He has said He will accomplish. And if He says Israel will be a forgiven people and belong to Him, and they will be a holy nation of priests, they will be a forgiven people, and they will belong to Him as a holy nation of priests. His loving kindness is an unbroken wellspring of faithful benevolence. God's loving kindness Abounding loving kindness is an unbroken wellspring of faithful benevolence. Lastly, God conveys to the, us to the extent or the measure of how unimaginably long or how far, really far He pours out that kindness. I mean, it's really hard to convey in some sense. But he shows us that in 7, or in the start. Says, says he's, he keeps, so he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and he's keeping steadfast love for thousands. Or if you read your footnote there in your scriptures, it says, unto the thousandth generation. Now, let's do a little mental experiment here. 
Imagine for a moment that you are an Israelite standing there in the wilderness. You, as an Israelite, you've broken the covenant promise that you made to your God who rescued you from the merciless slavery of the Egyptians by worshiping a golden calf. Due to your ungodliness, you Israelite, and your failure, God has every right to abandon you to your own demise there in the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. And just think, how in the world could you see past the end of that day, much less the thought that you might have great, 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 great grandchildren in whom God might be benevolent to for everything that has happened? Now think what it would be like to hear from God that His unending loving kindness and benevolence extends to your thousandth generation. I mean, wow, that's amazing. What, a, what God has enough loving kindness to extend it to the thousandth generation from right now? We may say it like this today, that God has an eternity long, unbroken line of kindness that He extends to His people. God has an eternity long, unbroken line of kindness that extends to His people. God's glory is on full display for, God, for Moses to see and to Israel to hear about and for us to hear about and read about today. What a sound and sight that this must have been as Moses is up there in that little cleft of the rock as God's passing by with a rushing wind displaying His, full, His glory to Moses. All of His goodness, His mercy, and unending grace. But God keeps going. He doesn't stop with, I'll extend my love and my loving kindness to the thousandth generation. No, what we learn now in the revelation of God's glory is that this becomes the foundation, the very foundation of how humanity can relate to God. The revelation of who God is. So let us now look at the end of, of, the end of verse 7 to the relationship between God and man. Look at verse 7. So he's going to extend loving kindness to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? So in our second point this morning, the relationship of God, consider this question that the psalmist asked. What is man, O oh God, that you are mindful of him? What are we? But the revelation of God's glory in verse 7 demands that we, how we relate to him as humanity. The implication of this verse demands that we understand that, uh, 
that relationship. And the implication of these verse, or this verse is that all humanity, and I mean all, everyone, all humanity stands guilty before God. Even as Paul had stated in Romans chapter 3, all have fallen short of the glory of God by sinning. None of us are of the same nature and quality of God. No one in here is sinfulness, sinful, sinless, and no one in here is holy. There is truly, and this is true not merely because we are creatures and He is our Creator, but we are not like God because we are unholy beings. We are sinners by nature. By nature. I mean, it is your instinct to rebel, from, rebel against God. Just like it's the instinct of a lion to eat an antelope, it is your instinct to sin against God. And we have fallen short of, the perf- of being the perfect Im- image bearers that He originally made us to be in the garden. We are by our nature children of wrath since we are dead in our trespasses and sins. This is not the, merely the state of someone out there, friends, who's not with us today. It is the state of all humanity in here and out there. Unless, unless one has been forgiven. However, let us be clear. There is only one of two positions before God. Either you are forgiven by the grace and mercy of God and His benevolence and His goodness and glory, or you will stand guilty to be punished for all eternity, separated from Him. There is no in-between. There is no middle way. You are either forgiven or or either you will be condemned for eternity. And the idea that God is conveying here, forgiving iniquity, is that God is a God who actually bears the sin of those He forgives. It is though sin were a weight upon His shoulders that He carries and properly handles for those who receive His forgiveness. God rightly deals with every transgression, sin, and iniquity we commit against Him in rebellion. There are only two ways that, that God rightly deals with sin. He either forgives sins, or He by no means clears the guilty. So we are either guilty in relationship to God, or we are either forgiven and made righteous And we ought to ask, friends, why in the world, why in the world would this glorious God that was just revealed to us in five, in verses five and six, in the first part of seven, bear sin? Why would he do such a thing? Friend, he does this. Because He is the only one who can rightly bear sin. If we try to bear our sins, we will mess it up. 
If we try to right the wrongs and, uh, and, and turn over the treason that we have against God, we will do so in a sinful manner and continue to sin against God. We can't do this on our own. He's the only one who can deal properly with our transgressions, our sins, and our iniquities. And I want to reveal to you that God fulfilled this promise to the Israelites. I encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 53 and let's listen to some verses from Isaiah 53. If you're using the Bibles around you, that could be found on page 614. Isaiah 53. The, the verses will be up here behind me as well. I just I want, I want you to hear some things about this amazing servant that God is going to call out of, or, or send to the world to deal rightly with sin. In verse 3 of chapter 53 of Isaiah, we hear about this servant that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 6. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. And at the end of verse, or verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will, divide, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. This glorious servant who bore the iniquities, sins, and transgressions of Israel and you and I and for humanity was none other than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In Hebrews 9.28, the writer, the author states that Christ has bore the sins of many as an offering of Himself upon the cross. And then in Hebrews 10.12, uh, we learn that Christ's offering of Himself for sins is a once for all sacrifice. No longer would the priest have to sacrifice animals for the sins of the people. Christ satisfied the justice of God for sinners in an offering of His pure, undefiled self. And now we know that when God forgives in Christ Jesus, there is no longer a need for an offering of sin. Christ has satisfied God's justice. So I ask, have you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your iniquity? 
for the forgiveness of your sin and the forgiveness of your transgressions. He is the trustworthy Son of God who died in our place that we could be forgiven. Cast yourself upon Him today. If you have not trusted in Him and would like to know more about what it means to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation and what it means to follow Him as your Savior and friend, we would love to talk to you after the service. There will be prayer counselors in the back. I'll be up here at the front. Please come and talk to us. And friends, when we grasp, when we begin to grapple with what Christ has accomplished for us in offering Himself to bear the iniquity and sins of us vile sinners, then life as we know it begins to absolutely and radically change. When we are forgiven by the mercy of God found in the face of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we live different lives on this planet as we await the eternal kingdom of God. One of the ways that our life begins to change is we begin to live differently in community with one another. Paul writes in Galatians 6.2 that we are to bear one another's burdens. So as a forgiven image bearer who lives differently in this world, you can take a weight upon your shoulders. You're called to. Because we, like Jesus, or we... Like Christ bearing our sin and, and, and one, the one who bears with us now, we can bear our other sisters' and brothers' burdens when they're going through a difficult season of life. We may need to open our homes for a brother or sister in need. We may need to change our calendars around or, God forbid, cancel some plans when a brother or sister calls for us to bear a burden for an hour or four. And we, need to, we can also bear each other's burdens by simply making ourselves available to buy a brother or sister who is bearing a heavy weight some groceries or a cup of coffee or maybe even a lunch. And friends, I know that many of these things are happening in our church and to God be the glory for the way in which we are bearing the burdens of one another and friends and family. I am grateful for that. But some of us, some of us may need a little encouragement this morning to take on a load that we have been either avoiding or unaware of. Another way that this shows up in our lives specifically is in extending forgiveness. Oftentimes we find it hard to forgive someone who has wronged us or hurt us or sinned against us. Is, is that not true? It's hard sometimes. Brothers and sisters, 
We are not to act like the world who only knows how to cancel rather than to forgive. Yes, you may need to stop listening to some voices. But far too often, we hear something or experience, experience something that we don't like from something for someone and we simply cancel them. We act as though they don't exist. <clears throat> Do not fall prey to this scheme of the devil. Recall what Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew chapter 18. How often shall we forgive? Seven times, Jesus? No, not seven. Seven times 77. Jesus is telling the disciples that if you're followers of me and you believe in me and you love the Father, then you're going to, reveal, you're going to act like the Father and you are going to have an unending line of forgiveness that flows to those who sin against you. We are to reflect God in being a wellspring of forgiveness. And we can do this because we know, we know if we are honest with ourselves, we have been forgiven much. And we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is not something you're going to wake up in the morning and naturally want to put your feet to doing is forgiving people. It is so easy to cancel someone in this culture. But forgive them? That is Christ-like and countercultural. I would encourage you to read later this week the parable in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. If you're struggling to forgive a brother... Forgive a sister, a friend, a neighbor, or maybe, maybe you're struggling to forgive a spouse. A husband or a wife. So God's glory has been revealed to us in the forgiveness that He offers us vile sinners. And our relationship with Him is founded upon that glory. That glorious forgiveness and goodness that God has towards humanity. But now let us see how the glory of God is the foundation of our worship to Him. Look with me in verse 8 to 9 of chapter 34 in Exodus. How did Moses respond? What does he do? Verse 8. He quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Friends, he hit the deck and did the only thing that his body would let him do, which was worship this glorious, good God. And there are a couple of ways that Israel responds as well. Because in God, in Moses going to Seek reconciliation for God, from God for their idolatry. They understand the bad news. They know that they've broken their end of the covenant. They've cut themselves off from God. The very gold with which they would be called to honor God with was turned into a false god and was worshipped at the base of the mountain. 
But Moses intercedes and God reveals his glory and loving kindness to reestablish the covenant. And when God astounds Moses and Israel with his glory, the only right response for Moses, Israel, and us, if you stand astounded by the glory of God today, is worship. Moses falls on the ground. He's humbled and awestruck by by just the back. Just the back of God's glory, which includes all of his goodness and the declaration of his name. Moses now knows that God fully intends to go with Israel throughout the wilderness and rewrite the covenant over again on these new tablets of stone. God can be with them now. He can be present with Israel because he has pardoned their iniquity and taken them back as his inheritance. Hey, think about it. Like some of us are in here long. Maybe we have an inheritance that may be doled out to us at some point in the future. But if you're in Christ Jesus, you have a glorious inheritance. The kingdom of God is yours. What is God's inheritance? A small people prone to idol worship who need His benevolence more than they need anything else in the world. Isn't that amazing? Why would God take ownership of us? Because He is glorious and He is good. And Moses knows that God has revealed the goodness of His glory. Israel must now do what is necessary So if God has taken them back as his possession, Israel says, okay, let's do what it takes to make it possible for God to dwell in our midst. So look over with me in verses 35, or in chapter 35, verses 5, and then down to 20. Moses says, take from you among your contribution, take from among you a contribution to the Lord. What, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Now look, look down at verse 20 of chapter 35. Then, so Moses goes through this entire list of what's going to be needed to build the tabernacle. And then the congregation of the people of Israel depart from the presence of Moses, 21, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought to the Lord the contribution used for the tent of meeting. Amazingly, their act of worship is not just lifted hands or bowed down faces before God, but they give generously so that God's dwelling with them can be possible. They give so much. They are so generous. They are so stirred by the the good glory of God that they give to the point to where the Hebrew artisans The men and women who God set apart to build the tabernacle come back to Moses after a few days of this treasure being piled up. And they say, Moses, you got to tell everybody to stop giving. 
We, we've got too much. But we're going to be able to build three tabernacles. We need one. There's only one true God. So Moses has to tell them to stop being generous for a time. The people of God with transformed lives and hearts because of the good, gracious, merciful King and forgiving God who restored His relationship with them, turn and give generously with hearts that are transformed. In worship, they are doing the very thing that they were created to do. They were created. You and I were created to reflect the character of God who, out of glorious goodness, generously gave Israel and you and I everything we need to be in relationship with Him. Like, don't forget this. God has given them every resource they need to be back in relationship with Him. And He's been generous to, the, like, to generations that you don't even know I will bless you with. My loving kindness will extend to them. He gave them forgiveness. He cleansed those who trusted in, them, trusted in Him from their guilt. He was gracious. He was merciful. He was abounding with loving kindness towards the, thousands, the thousandth generation who they were to train to respond in worship and spirit and truth. He was good to them, revealing His glory to Moses and now going to take them as His possession and dwell with them as they leave Mount Sinai and make their way to the promised land. And He is not only those things to Israel, He is those things to those of us who trust Him today. He is the eternal God who does not change. He is not, no less forgiving, no less gracious, no less merciful, no less lovingly kind. No shred of truthfulness or faithfulness has waned from His eternal essence of God. From His eternal essence. He does not grow weary of giving away the marvelous benevolent gifts to undeserving sinners. He doesn't grow tired of that. I grow tired of disciplining my kids at times. He does not grow weary of withholding discipline and being benevolent. What a great God we have. He takes joy when we stop our rebellion in light of who He is. Not how wonderful we are. Let's get it out of our minds. We are not a wonderful people. We don't deserve to belong to God. It's because of who He is. We worship. And heaven even rejoices when we stop our rebellion and turn to Him. And since God is so glorious and generous to us, are we not also to worship Him even today with generous hearts? I find it amazing that at the end of many of the letters and books in the New Testament, that one of the most logical responses to God's generosity and salvation and the extension of forgiveness is to be generous ourselves. Paul in Romans chapter 12 says this after he spends 11 chapters in the book of Romans talking about how amazing God is and how we can, have in, by faith alone, we can trust in His salvation through Christ Jesus. He says, 
that we are to give our lives, to give all of who we are as a living sacrifice to God. Which looks like, in your life, it could look like you being a faithful disciple maker. Or or maybe, maybe even God's calling you to be a missionary to some unreached people group. Or He's calling you to be a deacon. Or maybe even an elder one day. Are you generously giving of yourself, that is your time, your talents, and your treasures, to be prepared to do the things that God is calling you to do? Are you prepared? Are you generously giving of yourself? Or consider what the author of Hebrews says in in chapter 13, 15 and 16. He says, through Christ, then let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. So one of the ways this shows up in our lives is, yes, we do. We sing about who God is. We praise him from our mouths because our hearts are close to him in forgiveness. But. He also goes on to say, not only do you praise him with your mouth, but do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Pleasing to God. Did you know that your life, instead of thinking the things that you think, that your life is miserable to God and counts as nothing, that your life can actually be given as a gift to Him that is pleasing to Him? In what ways can you confidently say that you are doing good and sharing with what, you, what resources that you have been given as a pleasing sacrifice to God? May today be the day that we see indeed the glory of God as the foundation of our worship with Him. For He is a generous and benevolent God who forgives to the thousandth generation. And may we ourselves as His people be a benevolent and generous people who sacrifice to Him in a pleasing way. So friends, we have seen in Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 to 9, the goodness, the goodness of God's glory, the very essence of who he declares himself to be this second time on Mount Sinai. The glory of God is seen in the, as the foundation of our relationship between us and God. Excuse me. Then we saw that the goodness of God's glory elicits A response of worship from Moses and from those who have been so generously and graciously forgiven. May the awesome, majestic, good glory of God captivate your heart and soul and mind today. God's glory is the foundation of your relationship with Him and your worship to Him. I encourage now the music team, the worship team to come up and I'm going to pray for us. Oh God, You have made Yourself known. Particularly, You've made Your glory known to us and to Moses. Oh, Father God, may we be astounded and awestruck. May, as we have been called to from Hebrews, may our lives 
May our lips at this time in the time of song, may we call out to praise for how glorious you really are. And then, God, then, may we give ourselves all of who we are as a pleasing and honoring sacrifice because of all that you have been to us. I pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. The Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Will you stand as we sing this, sing of this great grace that is greater than all of our sins?